Well, good morning. Fantastic. You are awake this morning. That's, uh, that's wonderful. Well, I suppose happy Christmas, because we are just a, a few days away, and I'm feeling very Christmassy this morning, as you can see. Um, I have never, in fact, actually owned a Christmas jumper in my life, um, but this morning I uh, went to the grocery store to buy a newspaper and a pint of milk, and I took two small people with me, and uh, Asda very helpfully had a display of Christmas jumpers by the door on the way in, and uh, hence I now look like, I'm not quite sure what, actually, Giles Brandreth, I feel like this morning, um, but there we are. Well, great to, uh, great to see so many of you, and great to have had that Christmas uh, passage from Matthew chapter 1 uh, read to us uh, a few minutes ago. I think uh, one of the things I love uh, about this time of year is not just the, the carols and the uh, reflection uh, on that central story at the heart of Christmas, but also that chance, I think, to revisit those Bible passages that often we kind of file away uh, for the rest of the year and, uh, and don't often dip back into. And, and Matthew chapter 1 is one of my favorite passages uh, there in the Gospels and we're going to look at it in some detail this morning. But I think, you know, Matthew chapter 1, every time I I read it and revisit it, it reminds me that so often, in many ways, we get the story of Jesus wrong and we can get the story of Christmas, you know, wrong. We can sometimes be almost too overly familiar uh, with the story of, of Christmas. We know it too well. We know it so well And without meaning to, uh, without appreciating it, uh, we sanitize the Christmas story. You know, we make it cozy. Uh, We make it comfortable. Uh, We sugarcoat it a little bit. You know, we reduce the Christmas story to twee little Christmas carols away in a manger. Um, I love carols, uh, but I may offend a few this morning by saying if I could excise one carol from the hymn book, it would be uh, away in a manger. You know, the cattle lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Sorry, excuse me, you take a baby, you stuff him in an animal's straw, a trough full of straw, and stick a cow in his face, the child is going to cry. Or we think of uh, cute little children fumbling through their lines in a nativity play. For those of you who were here uh, last Sunday evening, there was that amazing uh, nativity that Izzy organized. And uh, being the father of two small children who were involved, it was amazing that this year, you know, kings didn't wander off in random places uh, at the wrong points during it, and so on and so forth. And we do nativity plays, and uncles and aunts and parents take photographs, and we all say, ah. In short, we have a tendency sometimes uh, to reduce uh, the Christmas story uh, to those kind of sugar-coated versions of it. But if you think about it for a moment, that first Christmas that we just uh, read a little part of there in Matthew chapter 1 is actually fairly beastly and it's fairly cruel and it's fairly hard when you think about it. A pregnant woman on the, ber- on the verge of giving birth, uh, but nobody can be bothered to offer her a bed. She has to have her baby uh, in an animal shed. She has to lay him in a feeding trough. Uh, you know, Herod's there, murderous tyrant on the edge of things, uh, doing his murderous work, and so on and so forth. The Christmas story that the Gospels give us in their unsugar-coated version uh, is dirty, uh, it's earthy, it's messy, and it's realistic. The Christmas story is at its heart not an easy story, but sometimes rather than wrestle uh, with that, uh, we tend to sanitize it a little bit. 
Or sometimes, as Christians, we get a little bit embarrassed, I think, uh, about the, uh, the Christmas story, especially the, uh, the miraculous uh, parts of the Christmas story, like the virgin birth, uh, for example. I had an atheist friend a few years ago who loved to mock Christians uh, by saying things like, you know, you Christians, it's ludicrous. You believe, in the, you believe in a talking snake, a talking donkey, and a virgin birth. And I know some Christians who get a bit nervous uh, about stories like this at Christmas when maybe our sceptical friends sort of raise their eyebrows and go, really? But of course, we don't need to be nervous uh, about the virgin birth uh, here at the heart of the Christmas story, a miracle like the virgin birth, because there's an awful lot that actually uh, can be said about it. For starters, it's worth noting uh, that Mary and Joseph were not credulous hillbillies who didn't know where babies came from. Mary and Joseph know precisely where babies come from, and that's the problem, that's the tension at the heart of the, uh, the Christmas story. It's the very fact they do know where babies come from. Nor is the, uh, the virgin birth and the, the incarnation something that the first Christians invented because they picked up the idea uh, from the Greco-Roman world, which was full of myths and legends and stories. After all, the Greek world believed that the world of spirit was separate uh, from the world of matter. To the Greek mind, the idea that the supreme God might take on flesh and step into space and time and history was considered ridiculous whilst the Jewish people of the day tended to believe that God was a bit distant, a bit austere, so holy, so other, that he would never dream of stepping into space and time and history. Uh, The virgin birth was a story so bizarre on one level that the Christians would never have made it up had it not actually happened. And of course, nor was the uh, virgin birth something that Matthew invented on the basis of reading uh, the Old Testament, The Hebrew text uh, of Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 that's often quoted at Christmas uh, uses the Hebrew word Alma, which actually means more young woman than it does virgin. And so Matthew is unlikely to have read this text as a Jew and gone, hey, I know, let's make up a story about a virgin birth. It's far more likely that Matthew knows the story of the virgin birth of Jesus. And then as he reads his Old Testament, he finds this verse that he finds supremely appropriate. But all that aside, to get hung up on the virgin birth, as some of my sceptical friends do, or to get hung up, in fact, on any of the the miracles of Jesus, is to, in fact, miss the biggest miracle in the heart of the New Testament. The biggest miracle in the entire of the New Testament, arguably, in fact, in the entire of the Bible, is, in fact, the incarnation. That moment when God himself, the word of God, becomes flesh in the person of Jesus. And because we have read many of us the Bible time and time and time again, we've sat in sermons after sermons, we can sometimes forget just how shocking, just how stunning, just what an amazing claim it is that God himself would take on flesh and become a human being. In fact, as one theologian famously put it, J.I. Packer put it this way, he said, this is the real stumbling block. This is the biggest stumbling block in the Christian faith. Because there are lots of people willing to talk about Jesus as just a good man. One of the most famous atheists who lived in the last uh, few decades, Christopher Hitchens, although he wrote uh, virulent books attacking God and attacking Christian faith, he repeatedly said that he admired Jesus as a teacher of morality. 
My Muslim friends are very happy to revere Jesus as a prophet. My Hindu friends are happy to list him, among others, as an avatar. The Jehovah's Witnesses, who occasionally knock on our doors, are happy to, uh, to uh, admire Jesus as an angel. But all of those things fall short of what the New Testament actually claims. And it's uh, fascinating and amazing to reflect on the incarnation for a moment. And if the incarnation happened, everything else in the life of Jesus becomes unproblematic. After all, what is the problem with feeding 5,000 people? What is the problem with walking on the water, casting out demons? What is the difficulty with raising the dead if Jesus is God incarnate, God in the flesh? Secondly, of course, if the incarnation happened, that means that we can't just like Jesus. I meet many people who say, I actually quite like Jesus, to which my response is always, isn't it fascinating that when you read the Gospels, nobody just liked Jesus? No one simply liked him. They either loved him and adored him and followed him and gave their lives uh, to doing so, or they hated him, they rejected him, and they tried to kill him. Jesus was an incredibly divisive figure because the claim that Jesus is God-made flesh is not one that you can simply sit on the fence with. You either need to embrace it and respond, or you need to uh, roll your eyes and walk away. And, you know, we can miss the wonder and the shock and the radicalness of the incarnation and the virgin birth if we let our over-familiarity with the story, with our temptation to domesticate Christmas, uh, rob us of some of the richness of that passage we read this morning uh, in Matthew chapter 1. It's helpful to try and, if we can, read texts like Matthew 1 with with fresh eyes to see them uh, afresh. And what I want to do is try and do that this morning. And as we do that together over the next 20 minutes or so, there are really three things I want to bring out of Matthew 1, verses 18, 18 to 25 this morning. Those verses, those eight verses, tell us that there is a cost to commitment. They tell us that God is with us And they give us a a promise that there is real hope for the world. A cost commitment, the promise that God is with us, and the the truth that there is real hope for the world. Let's start with the first of those, the cost of commitment. You know, I wonder if you've ever noticed as you've read the, the, uh, the gospel stories, the gospel accounts of Jesus, that the gospels actually give us two perspectives, two uh, overlapping but quite different perspectives uh, on, the, uh, on the birth of Jesus. If you were to read Luke's gospel, uh, you would see the story of the virgin birth is told from Mary's perspective. But this morning, we've looked at Matthew's gospel, and he gives the story from Joseph's perspective. Same story, but told from two different perspectives. But what's interesting, that although they are different perspectives, one from Mary's perspective, one from Matthew's side of the story, there are some common themes. And one of the things you see both in Matthew and Luke when you read the, the incarnation and the annunciation stories there is the two themes that come out very strongly to me are fear and obedience. Fear and obedience come through those passages. Mary was afraid at the visit of the angels, at the visit of the angel. I always find it fascinating that when you look at Christmas cards, angels are always quite cute and quite uh, uh, quite fluffy and obviously got got a glitter addiction. Uh, But when you read the the New Testament, when you read the Gospels, when you read the Bible, interesting how often angels turn up and the first thing they have to say is, do not be afraid. I don't think angels are cute and fluffy uh, in the New Testament. The uh, Mary's response was fear, also fear at how she could be pregnant because she was a virgin. 
But then her response uh, to Gabriel in Luke's gospel, in Luke 1.38, is one of simple faith and trust. I am the servant of the Lord, Mary says. Uh, Let it be to me according to your word. Or by contrast, Matthew's gospel, where we were a few minutes ago, gives us Joseph's perspective and Joseph's fear. There is fear and trust also in Matthew's gospel. Matthew tells us that uh, Joseph was betrothed to be married to Mary. And in the ancient world, uh, engagement, betrothal, was an incredibly serious thing. It was a legal commitment when you got engaged to somebody. There would have been an arrangement made. There would have been uh, solemn words exchanged uh, between the two families, a legal contract uh, between the two families. Betrothed couples in the ancient world, they were not yet married, uh, but they were far more deeply committed than simply being engaged. To be betrothed to somebody was a very, very serious thing indeed. And so we read in Matthew's Gospel that during this period of betrothal, Mary falls pregnant. That's an incredibly serious thing in a highly conservative religious culture like first century Judea, where sex outside marriage was considered unthinkable and utterly taboo. When Mary's pregnancy becomes obvious, when she can no longer hide it, of course the rumors, uh, the whispers, the gossip, uh, the Twitter storm, actually maybe not the last one, Uh, never do that joke ever again, Um, all begin. People in the close-knit community of Nazareth would have drawn one of two conclusions. They would have figured out that Mary was pregnant, and they would have drawn one of two conclusions. Conclusion number one, that Joseph and Mary have slept together uh, before marriage, Uh, or conclusion number two, Mary has committed adultery. Nobody in the ancient world would have looked at Mary being pregnant and gone, oh, I bet it's a virgin birth. Nobody uh, would have gone that route. Now, Joseph is in a different situation. Joseph knows the truth. He knows it's not option one. He knows he hasn't slept with Mary. So the only option open to Joseph is to assume option two. He assumes his first, his first assumption will be that his, uh, his bride-to-be has committed adultery. Now, given a legal betrothal that Mary has broken, Joseph could, in the culture, if he wanted, have demanded a public trial. He would have been perfectly entitled to one. The result would have been ruined reputations. And quite frankly, the result might have been Mary stoned to death for adultery. Or at the very least, Mary ruined uh, an outcast condemned to a life of alienation, humiliation, a single mother on the very fringes of society. He could have done that. He would have had every right to do that. But we read instead, being a kind and good man, Matthew uh, decides he will save her reputation and divorce her quietly. Mary will end up a single mother, but she'll end up with her reputation intact. Maybe she can move to a different town or village. Maybe people will assume that she's been widowed very young. Maybe she might even have the chance uh, to marry in the future. So we can only imagine the stress and anxiety that Matthew, uh, that, that Joseph is feeling at this point. But along comes the angel and says to him, Joseph, do not be afraid. Mar- marry Mary. So why does the angel say, do not be afraid, to Joseph? Well, because quite simply, in the ancient world, reputation was everything. Reputation was social currency. People are going to do the maths and figure out that something has inappropriate has happened. People are probably going to figure out that Joseph has slept with Mary before marriage and that this was a shotgun wedding. 
That's what people in the culture are going to assume. So Joseph here is making a huge commitment. You know, the, for the virgin birth for Joseph is not a cozy miracle. Joseph is not sitting there thinking, hooray, a virgin birth, that's fantastic. Joseph is sitting there thinking this is going to be costly, it's going to be inconvenient. The child is going to live in Joseph's home, and Joseph's reputation is going to be forever tarnished. For his entire life, Joseph will have to deal with the rumors. He'll have to deal with the whispers. He'll have to deal with the assumptions. He'll have to try to explain what has happened, and however hard he says, no, no, really, it was a virgin birth, people are going, oh, really? Really, that's what happened. And forever, Joseph's going to face those whispers. You see, there is a cost to obedience. There is a cost to belief, and Joseph paid that price in the Christmas story. The same is true today, increasingly so uh, in our culture and many cultures. Being a, being a Christian, being willing to, willingly to publicly identify as a follower of Jesus can open you up to insults, it can open you up to ridicule, it can open you up to a reputational damage, and all kinds of things. And in some cultures, it can be even tougher. A friend of mine a few years ago uh, met a Christian teacher uh, from a predominantly Muslim country who had lived through this experience in a very, very real way. This teacher was teaching in a school where about 98% of the children were Muslim, all the staff were Muslim, the head teacher was Muslim. He was about the only Christian on the entire faculty. And one day, there was a school assembly, a thousand students gathered in the hall, all the staff, the headmaster up there on stage, and during the, uh, the, uh, the talk that morning, the Muslim uh, headmaster began to insult and ridicule Christians. And during his talk, he actually summoned this Christian teacher up onto the stage and said to him in front of a thousand students and staff, is it true that according to your Bible, Jesus said that if a man asks for your uh, coat, you should give him your shirt as well? And the teacher said, Jesus said that. So the headmaster said, well then, give me your coat. In front of a thousand people, the teacher took off his jacket. And the head teacher said, and your shirt as well. And so in front of a thousand people, this Christian teacher dressed it, strips down to his waist. Then the head teacher said, didn't Jesus also say that if a man slaps you on the right cheek, you should offer him the other cheek? And the teacher said, yes, Jesus said that. And in front of a thousand people, the headmaster struck this teacher a ringing blow across the cheek. And the teacher just quietly turned his face and received another blow. The teacher then walked off the stage, out of the, out of the hall, back to his room, weeping, thinking he had let Jesus down and be utterly humiliated. Twenty minutes later, there was a knock at the door. It was a Muslim student who'd come to apologize for what the head teacher had done. He was followed by another, and another, and another. All in all, about 30 or 40 students over the rest of the day came and apologized. And within two weeks, he had had the privilege of leading six of them to faith in Christ. Because they'd seen a Christian willing to pay the cost of commitment and suffer for what they believed. There could be a cost to uh, obedience. Joseph could have publicly accused Mary of adultery. He could have had a stone to death. He could have divorced her quietly and married somebody else, but he didn't. Instead, Joseph married her. He paid the price of his honor. 
He paid the price of his reputation. He laid those things down for the sake of Mary's joy, Mary's safety, Mary's comfort, Mary's security, and Mary's happiness. And Joseph offers us, his obedience in the Gospels offers us a picture of a God who did the same for us. A God who, when he came in the flesh, was born not in a palace, but a stable. Not in a luxury hotel, but an animal shed, who was born not to fanfare, uh, but to insult and to death threats. A Second Corinthians 8 verse 9 reminds us, he became poor that we, through his poverty, we might become rich. And why did Jesus do this? Well, because of what the angel had told Joseph, that this was no ordinary child, but that through him, God would, sa- would save his people from his sins. And as Joseph grasped with wonder what God was going to do for him and for us uh, through Jesus, I think that gave Joseph the courage to model that in his own family. Joseph was doing what passages like Philippians 2 call us to do, to have in our minds the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ. So the cost of commitment is the first lesson here for us in Matthew chapter 1. Second thing I'd like to talk about for a few moments as we explore these verses uh, in the run-up to Christmas is the theme of God with us that is all over these eight verses here in Matthew chapter 1. You know, the God of the Bible is unique in that he is a God who reveals himself and makes himself known. You know, I've spent 20 years of my academic life studying uh, Islam and have engaged with hundreds of probably thousands of Muslims over the years by this point. And I'm always struck by whenever I read the texts of Islam that the God of Islam, the God of the Quran, is a God who is distant and remote. He hides himself away in heaven. He reveals his commands, but never his character, never his identity, never himself. A huge contrast with the God of the Bible, who as well as reveal his will to us, also reveals himself and his identity, his very own self. Now, of course, you can only have a, a relationship with, a, with somebody if they, if, they, if they wish to make themselves known to you. You know, if a new person uh, moved into your street and you wanted to make friends with them, but it turns out they never ever left their house, they stayed inside, kept the curtains drawn, ordered all of their groceries uh, on, a, on the internet and everything else on Amazon, other online retailers are available, um, and perhaps the only time they ever left their house was once a month for local meetings of Agrophobics Anonymous, but those are closed door meetings and you can't get in. Clo- thank you, closed door meeting, I, see that's a quality, that's a, that's, a, that's a broadsheet joke, but there we are. You could never make friends with that person because they weren't willing to reveal themselves. They, would, they were hiding themselves away. And the same is true of God. If God did remain up there in heaven, only ever revealing his commands and his decrees, but never himself. We could know about God, but we could never know him. Because true knowing requires more than just information. However much you know about somebody, information is not the same as knowing them personally. True knowing requires intimacy. And thus Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 says to us that Jesus came to reveal God to us. Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. He came not just to reveal knowledge, information about God to us, but actually to lead us into a deep relationship with God. A relationship based not just on information, but also based on intimacy. The New Testament repeatedly says in verse after verse, if you want to know what God is like, take a look at Jesus. Or as the Scottish theologian James Stewart memorably put it, he said the mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. 
And I think that's hugely important because we have a tendency as human beings to want to make God in our image. We have a tendency as human beings to want to design a God who suits us, a God who looks a bit like us, a God who perhaps exists just to validate our own preferences. We as human beings have a tendency to look at God, as it were, through the wrong end of the telescope, and we end up making a God who is far too small. But the great news is that if Jesus is God with us, that means he can't be controlled. He can't be manipulated. He can't be uh, designed to fit us. Instead, the incarnation means God with us. And if you put the emphasis on the first word in that sentence, God with us, that reminds us you know, that the gospel is not an idea. It's not a concept. Christmas is not just a nice story but it's about God with us in person, breaking our categories, shattering our preconceptions, not allowing us to define God for ourselves, but coming to us, God with us. But you can also put the emphasis on the second word in that sentence, God with us. You know, there are two kinds of withness, if you think about it for a moment. About 25 uh, years ago, uh, I once met Princess Diana. Uh, My closest I ever came to a brush with greatness. She and I were at the same conference uh, in London. I was one of the organizing team for the conference, and I got to be in a lineup of 200 people, and I got to shake her hand for about two seconds. And I think my takeaway memory was, gosh, you are very, very tall. Um, I think that of most people actually being just five foot eight, but she was very, very tall. Now, would she have remembered me? Absolutely, categorically not. I was not wearing the Christmas jumper. I was just one face at a line of 200. So could I say I was with Princess Diana? Well, technically true, but it would be stretching the point somewhat. By contrast, there is a different kind of withness. That means somebody really coming alongside and deeply identifying with you. I remember uh, a few years ago now, uh, when Astrid and I went through a very difficult time uh, in our life, Uh, we had uh, experienced a couple of miscarriages on the way to our first child, Katrina, uh, coming along, and that was painful, it was hard, it was tough, but one of the things that got us through uh, that horrible experience was not least friends who came round who spent time with us, who invested into us, who wept with us, prayed with us, and comforted us. People who were truly with us because they were really investing time and energy and presence. And that's what the Bible says God did when he became human in the person of Jesus. He deeply, deeply identified with us. And because of the incarnation, he knows what it means to be sick. He knows what it means to mourn. He knows what it means even to die. And that's a tremendous resource when we ourselves suffer because God doesn't necessarily provide a theological answer to suffering and bereavement and loss, but he does give us presence in our suffering because he can identify with us. But then thirdly, you can put the emphasis on the last word. You can emphasize the first word or the second word. The last word is interesting when you emphasize it, God with us. You know, it's interesting that the name Jesus was a very popular boy's name at the time that Jesus was born. It meant the same in Hebrew as the name Joshua. Of course, in the Old Testament, it was Joshua who helped rescue uh, his people uh, from slavery in Egypt. 
But of course, in Jesus, God is rescuing us from something far more severe, slavery to sin. And the incarnation is God's gift to us uh, at Christmas. Of course, some gifts can be very, very hard to receive. I wonder how you'd feel on Christmas morning if you unwrapped a present from your, uh, from your spouse and it was a subscription to a health club. Is that a good kind of present? Or imagine I have a, a present under the tree that my, uh, my dear wife has put there for me. I've been wondering all week what it is. And I open it and I discover a book called Overcoming Selfishness. <laughs> to receive a gift like that is interesting because you have to accept that you have flaws and weaknesses and you need help. The gift of Jesus is similar, actually. We can only truly accept the gift of Jesus uh, and we can only know him personally if we have the courage to admit that we need saving, that we are sinners who need help. Because Jesus' entire mission is writ right there, largely in verse 21. He will save his people from their sins. But of course, in order to receive that, we need to be willing to admit that we're sinners. We need to be willing to admit that we're failures. We need to be willing to admit that we've made ourselves the center of the universe, that we failed to love God with our hearts and our minds and our souls and our strengths, and that the main thing we need above anything else is forgiveness and pardon. And too often, tragically, arrogance and pride and superiority hold people back from accepting the gift of of Jesus that first Christmas. Matthew's entire gospel is actually framed by this idea of witness. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And then at the end of his gospel, Matthew 28, Jesus promises, I am with you to the end of the age. Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. God with us. Well, we've looked at the cost of commitment. We've looked at God with us. One last theme that's there in Matthew chapter 1 I want to spend a few minutes on, and then we'll draw the threads together as we close. We've seen that commitment has a cost. We've seen that God is with us, but the last theme here in Matthew 1 is equally as important, and that it's hope for the world. You know, Christmas reminds us that there is hope for the world, because God is not afraid of, God is not remote from, God is not aloof from even the stables of the world. You know, lots of religions and ideologies actually reject the notion that the world is a a good place and it matters. Lots of Eastern religions claim this world is just a religion. Islam claims that this world is is effectively a prison camp, a place where God threw us when we were tossed out of heaven. Secular atheism says this world is a result of nothing more than time plus chance plus natural selection and it will all burn in the fire at the end of the universe. But Christianity, Christianity, on the other hand, says that Jesus took on flesh and blood, and that tells us that the natural world matters to God. It is good, says Genesis chapter 1, and it will be redeemed, says Isaiah 11 and Romans 8. And because of that, because of that hope, we can serve and make a difference in this world, knowing that there is a difference to be made. And that is hugely important for us who are followers of Jesus here this morning at Christmas because the challenge for each one of us is to be transformed by the power of the incarnation but also to live in the light of the incarnation. J.I. Packer, uh, who I quoted to you a few moments ago, wrote these profoundly challenging words. He wrote, We talk glibly of the Christmas spirit. 
rarely meaning more by this than sentimental jollity on a family basis. That is not the Christmas spirit. Nor is it the spirit of those Christians, alas, they are many, whose ambition in life seems to be limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home, making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways, and to leave the sub-middle-class sections of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get on with it by themselves. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christmas snob, for the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives spent on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others and not just their own friends in whichever way there seems need. This Christmas, how can we, how can I, how can you reflect the spirit of the incarnation, the spirit of the Jesus who became poor that we might become rich into the lives of those around us. Not because by striving to do that, God might love us more. He's already shown us, both at Christmas and Easter, how much he loves us, but how might we show that to others as a grateful response to so great a love that those that we serve might see Christ reflected in us. Do you know, I find it fascinating that as they reflected on Christmas, as they reflected on the ministry of Jesus, as they reflected on Easter and the resurrection, the first Christians 2,000 years ago chose the word gospel to describe their message. The word gospel, that's an English translation of the Greek word euangelion. You know, the word gospel is interesting. It doesn't mean nice story. It doesn't mean uh, comforting advice. It doesn't mean religion. It certainly doesn't mean a a list of helpful suggestions. Rather, the word gospel means good news. And the thing about news is when you hear a piece of news, a piece of life-transforming, life-changing, world-altering news, only one question actually matters. Is that piece of news true? Did it actually happen? See, if the gospel were a self-help technique, or if the gospel were a list of tips for a, happy, for a happier life, we could learn the gospel from anybody. You could find it in any religion you choose. We could merrily declare that all paths lead to the same God. Believe whatever you want, it's exactly the same. But if the gospel is a piece of good news, primarily about a person, Jesus Christ, God with us, then that means there is only one way to God. But far more than that, it means that God has come to us. That's why Christmas matters so much, because if the Christmas story is true, the hinge of history is found not in a palace, or in wars and battles, or in votes in Parliament, or not even in Brexit, but the hinge of history is found on a stable door. Christmas shows us that Christianity is not just good advice, but good news. Yes, There is a cost to commitment, but God is with us, and there is hope for the world. Because in the words of that famous hymn, that famous carol, Christ the Saviour is born. Let us pray. Father God, I uh, thank you 
uh, that Christ the Savior is born. Thank you that you are not a God who is distant and remote and transcendent, who sat up there in heaven and just sent us down laws and instructions, but you are a God who 2,000 years ago stepped into history in the person of Jesus, came in the flesh that we might not just know you, not about you, but know you. And Lord, I pray this Christmas that for each of us who are followers of you, that amidst all the fun and the food and the families and the carols and the decorations and the presents, would you remind us of just the power of that piece of news that you are with us. And Lord, if there are some here this morning who have not yet discovered the gift of Jesus uh, at Christmas or indeed at any time, uh, have perhaps been sitting on the fence and thinking about these things for some time, this Christmas, would you meet with them as you met with those shepherds and those kings that first Christmas, and you've met with each of us who know you uh, when we gave our lives to you and said we want to follow. Thank you that you are God with us, Emmanuel. Amen. We're going to 